Can you remember to get your call? Yes, Jeannie Murphy, please. Have a nice job. Connect you. Thank you. Day in Stanford, Connecticut. That's right. Is that the best you could do? This is the best you could do for Valentine's Day. I'm afraid so. All right, we'll be in Paris by tomorrow. Well, that, that if it's only stopping at a Marriott on Valentine's Day, then it's all worthwhile. That's correct. <laughs> Moving to, were you working there? Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Where? Uh, uh, let's just see. Um, Fine Arts Hall. What's the name of the Performing Arts yeah. Center. Do you do any more? Do you do a lot of colleges still? Well, not enough. I like yeah. them more and more, but there was a period in there when it was not the best place for me to be. Yeah, well, that I know. Uh, I think it's getting past that, and I enjoy those um, college town concerts on campus more than anything else right now. Well, I'm, I've am i been very involved with Yale over the years. I've endowed some seats. I went to Yale. I gave seats to the music school, and, and about three or four years ago, I helped them put together some kind of concert program with you know, kind of popular artists, the contemporary artists. And uh -huh. have you ever done any of those programs at all at Yale? Um, well, I don't think so, unless many, many, many years ago. Well, let me see if I if I get back in the booking business here sure <laughs> for my part. <laughs> I appreciate your time this morning, my and, pleasure, and and you. I, I don't know if you know what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to put to bed an oral history here, and I've talked to about 240 people so far, right. and. It, it's going to be kind of a Studs Terkel book, and, and it in no way impinges upon your book maybe coming out paperback by the time this thing is, is out. Uh, so I, I just wanted to ask a few questions. That's fine. And, and a few things. It, it, I remember when uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary were recording for, I was at Warner Brothers at the time, and, and you were coming along, and, and what we commented on always, and it, it always runs through, is the voice. Mm -hmm. uh, the voice was remarkable, and all I've read is there was no training for it, and all of a sudden this voice came out. What, what, what developed this voice? Well, um... I don't know if you've seen my book at all, but the first line yeah. is slightly arrogant. It says, I was born gifted. Yeah. And it was, I read the book, yes. I, well, it was a gift and still is. I work on it now. I didn't for the first 20 years. Yeah. never occurred to me. But that apparently can't go on forever. And at a certain point, as my vocal coach pointed out, gravity takes over everything. <laughs> so yes. if you want to keep those things working, you have to exercise them, record. But, but when I first started singing, it just simply happened. I mean, it just came. It hadn't been in the family? No one had... Um, well, my family's all musical. Yeah. They all sing. Nobody... My mother, if she'd probably had the, the chance, uh, would have gone... It would have been in the theater. I don't know whether, about voice. Uh, and it was it was so unusual to have that kind of voice, especially in the folk world of that, that late 50s and 60s. Uh, they were, uh, well, that was all just, I mean, um, right person, right place, right time. Yeah because uh, I could have popped up in the 80s with his voice and, uh, you know, yeah. nobody would have given it the time of day. Do you think, do you think not? Um, I think I would have been, well, let me put it this way. The thought, when I happened along and fell in love with folk music, it happened to be time of folk music, boom. I happened to be a Quaker and very socially and politically engaged before I even sang professionally, so that the next step was that. And um, 
So going directly from folk ballads, which suited me and vice versa, into contemporary songs, and then then into writing, all happened absolutely naturally. And it, but now, say back then, if I would look around what was currently being written and what people were performing and listening to, I could have sung maybe maybe uh, three out of every ten songs. And now it's to find one out of a hundred songs which are written now, sure. which are current, which relate to me and vice versa. I'm lucky to find one out of a hundred. What, what are your recollections of that folk scene in New York in, in that period? It was, it was a very short period, but it seems so active and such a community feeling. Is that, that a I perception? I wasn't in New York much, Joe. I was in Boston. In Harvard yeah. Square. Yeah. And I went to the village a couple of times, and um, I was awed by it. And I wandered around in black eye makeup <laughs> and did all the appropriate things. And and I remember sort of extraordinary things, like going and ad-libbing um, wordless notes to Hugh Romney. I don't know if you remember him. Well, I, I remember the name. Well, he's now Wavy Gravy. Yes. One of the West Coast's more appealing lunatics. You know, I mean, an absolutely extraordinary and wonderful lunatic. And back then, he was an extraordinary and wonderful comedian. He had told me that. I, I dealt with him when I had the Grateful Dead. <laughs> and uh, and then we put together this uh, movie, Medicine Ball Caravan, at oh. Warner's, where I appointed Wavy Gravy, the ringmaster of one of the great, yeah. dis- <laughs> one of the great disasters of <laughs> modern American entertainment. They never got out of the parking lot, I don't think, in San Francisco. Uh, but th- th- there were such characters that I got, because very early for me at Warner's with Jack Elliott and Eric Anderson and, uh-huh. and people like that, but was there a community feeling at all? Yes, there was. There was, and it was the same feeling. I mean, Jack and Eric, I knew in Upper State New York, and I knew them in Cambridge as well. And Club 47, which was, um, it had been a jazz club, and the folk boom started to evolve, and so they asked me to do a night a week, and eventually two nights a week, and pretty soon it was simply a folk club. But Eric came by, and Eric von Schmidt, and Debbie Green, and all the people who taught me everything that I learned then. Do you remember the, the first exposure to uh, to Bob Dylan? Uh, yeah, I do. Uh, I remember, you mean first meeting or first? First meeting, first hearing his music. Uh, well, I heard about him before I heard him. Um, and then somebody invited me to Gertie's, Folk City, 61, I guess. And um, and that's where I saw him sing the first time. What was the, what kind of impact did you get? Oh, it knocked me flat. I mean, yeah. it was everything everybody said was uh, very appropriate. I thought he was uh, brilliant. And it's just amazing. Scruffball, writing those words. He sang yeah. song to Woody. And... Something else that night. He was. I think he was. One song he was making up as he was singing. Was there anybody in that whole crowd that influenced you, like a Pete Seeger or? Oh, uh, Pete did enormously yeah. for my. Um, but that was long before. Uh, I came to my high school and sang. I must have been 16 or 17. And my relatives were all sitting around with their fingers crossed, hoping I'd go and get interested, because up till then I'd just been singing rhythm and blues to the ukulele. <laughs> but there was never a question for you that you were going to be a singer? That you were going to sing, anyhow? Well, I never considered that I was going to be a singer. I mean, I didn't make plans, ever. And so it really and truly, as it happened, it simply happened and unfolded. I never made designs. In fact, I fought it then for lots of not too intelligent psychological reasons. I was afraid of it and afraid of showbiz and afraid of the industry, afraid of being commercial. And so I 
would give, you know, at the beginning, say, um, I would limit concerts to 20 a year. People thought I was being clever and saving myself <laughs> for the, you know, so I could make more money the next year. It had absolutely nothing to do with that. I just thought it was not healthy to be on the road, which is true, right. <laughs> and et cetera, et cetera, all very puritanical stuff. We when when acceptance came and it seemed to come almost immediately for you was that was that a surprise that it had much of an impact yeah. on your life? Yeah. Oh yeah, I was yeah. A, I was completely overwhelmed by it and it took its toll, and I've certainly bought into the Madonna image right. um, because it it was very flattering and I thrived on the attention. I loved it. And people accuse me now of liking attention. I say yeah, <laughs> you know, I've never tried to kid anybody about it. Uh, what, what you did and what you represented must have brought all kinds of pressures on you to represent this, represent that, and live up to certain expectations. So how about that? Uh, well, politically or musically? Politically and musically. Uh, I think it was always easier for me politically yeah. than it was musically. I mean, that, those, that came more naturally to me than the music. It was more ingrained than the music. Uh, did this di and the dichotomy of dealing with with social action on one side and the career on the other side that had to pose all kinds of problems, too, didn't it? Well, I wouldn't deal with it as a, as a career. I mean, pose problems for my manager. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> because I, you know, I didn't have a money problem by any means. I was making more money than than anybody would have needed, and so I didn't, you know, if I thought that I had to do something, I know I was wanted to go and do something political. I would just say, we're not doing any concerts this year. <laughs> So it always took priority. Um, later on, that was much more difficult, partly because, mostly because the changing of the times and people don't, were not interested in music that had anything to do with politics. I, and, and I wonder, that, that, that incredible period of maybe 10 years in there, uh, when you look back on it, is, is, is anything stick out? Uh, the, the, there were so many things that happened and, and you seem to be in the center of so much of it. Uh, you know, it occurred to me the other day when I was watching this 20th anniversary of the Summer of Love, one of those TV specials, right. a couple of them, and I saw Mickey Jagger dancing around with handcuffs on, and I saw people trying to levitate the Pentagon, and, <laughs> and oh, a lot of um, the, um, what was it, the Mary, the Mary Pranksters and their bus, yeah. and a lot of drugs. And I thought, gosh, where was I? <laughs> and I was in jail. I mean, I was in a much more serious kind of Quakerly approach to politics. So in a way, I think, well, I missed out on all the playful politics because I was too serious. But I was definitely doing, I mean, I was in the South. One of the times that, that all those activities were going on in San Francisco, I was singing in the Deep South. And another time I literally was um, in jail for draft resistance, aiding and abetting. And no, I was there. <laughs> there was never a question you were there. I, I just wonder, with with so much that happened to you as in, in the South and in jail and going to Hanoi and doing your concert, was it a Christmas concert, I remember? Well, it wasn't for yeah. a concert. It was yeah. to take yeah. mail. You know, it was just yeah. to visit. It was Christmas 72 yeah. during the bombing. Uh, that, that whole period, uh, do you spend a, much time reflecting on it at all? No, I don't. Um, yeah. I, I'm always amazed at how much, how many people I meet spend so much time in their minds back there, and I wondered why I don't, and maybe I'm kidding myself, but it, I think that I was more serious and worked too hard and didn't have enough fun and would really prefer to get on with my life now because it's a lot easier or more pleasant or I don't know how to say it. 
when in my 40s. My 40s are a better time for me than those other times. I I have no, I hate 60s parties. You know, I don't go to them. <laughs> I'm not interested in reliving any of that stuff. Well, yesterday I did an interview with George Harrison, and uh-huh. and it, it it must be uh, it's awful pressure to have been a Beatle for many yeah. years, and and I think Joan Baez, uh, it's almost generic with the 60s, whether you yeah. want to distance yourself or not. When they talk about it, the, the name comes up. Well, when somebody is um, the most visible publicly, nationally or internationally, that's the way they will remain for the most most people forever. Unless, say, an example like Tina Turner, who um, will have two images forever. One is the Tina in the short skirt with the eye cats, and the other is with the lion hair, because she surpassed her earlier image as far as mass media went. And I never have, and, you know, maybe I will, maybe I won't. That's something that can't concern me. You know, I mean, I can't spend my time being concerned about that. But but as it stands, because this the kind of media um, society that we are, people re- remember only when you were at your pinnacle. And for them, I still have long hair. <laughs> Would, uh, were you angry at all or have, as, as the passion seemed to die out of uh, a generation and everybody seemed to get into something else? Was there? Well, it certainly was disorienting. Yeah. It was disorienting. And, and for, for an artist who had built so much of her career around this, it had to be a very difficult period, too. Well, there are two things involved. One yeah. is serious political concerns about, yeah. good God, where is it all going during those dead years? the years of silence and ashes, the other is personal ego. And I'm sure many of the people you've spoken with have, you know, um, discussed it in varying ways. I've heard people lie about it, and I've heard other people be straight about it. It's an ego bashing if you've been a superstar, and then you go an eight-year period when record companies could, you know, are not interested. So then, you know, then you come to terms with yourself and figure out what you do. You know, what do I do with my gift? What's What's it here for now? What's the best way I can use it? And, um, and try to cut away all the trash around that. You, you're one of the very few people that really made some conscious choices to where your life and your career went. Other people seem to be swept along, most people are. Uh, in, in that, so you can ask a question, is there anything you'd have done differently as you look at a Streisand, you look at someone else who never involved themselves with that during that period? And, oh, well, yeah. I always have difficulty with that question because... Yeah. Um, it's too hypothetical. I, I, it, I guess know, so. We did yeah. what we had to do. As far as major mistakes, I'm happy to say not really. Most of mine are like everybody else's. They're miserable little petty personal things that we wish we'd done otherwise. <laughs> you know, done another way around. But um, it's not, for instance, oh gosh, you know, I switched my politics and I wish I'd switched it earlier and so on. It's basically remained pretty consistent. Where where are you finding songs uh, in the last five, six, seven, eight years? What what kind of songs, and, and, and what do you look for? Yeah, somebody said, how did you pick those songs for the album recently? I said, oh, it was easy. I had eight years to choose. <laughs> I came up with some really nice songs. <laughs> they hit me in the middle of the head, Joe. I yeah. mean, something like Biko is a given. Right. And Brothers in Arms, same thing. I listened to it once, sat down, listened to it ten times, and wept through the whole thing, and then um, tried to figure out how I could... what how I could do with it would sound the best. They're obvious ones, partly because they are so rare now. I'll have to send you a copy. It'll be out next month. I, I will send it, making a note now, of uh, Harry Belafonte's album. Oh, please do. Belafonte did uh, 
you know, it is South African musicians and a lot of South African music, and uh, it is, you know, and obviously there's going to be the comparisons to Paul Simon and he's riding the bandwagon, but it really isn't. Uh, and it's it's remarkable, the, the kind of songs. He found a beautiful love song, these things with Jennifer Warrens. Oh, how nice. That uh, we think is a, a major hit record as well. And uh, you, you are prepared now, I guess, to to sing songs. Uh, someone gives you a great love song or yeah. a great ballad or something like that. Yeah, I'll sing, you know, I'll sing what I... Designing that record was mainly to be beautiful, to be somehow rather relevant either to either to a love song as how it suited me or to, um, you know, the Bikos and Asimbunangas. They're tuneful and beautiful and uh, current and fresh. Are you finding uh, audiences as you work over the last 10 years, do they, do they allow you the freedom to move on in your career or do they want to go back and, and sing the night they laid old Dixie down or something? Both. Yeah. Both. You know, it depends on my mood, how much of both the things I'll do. There's a lovely review this morning, which is pretty common, the old and the new. You know? um, what I wouldn't be able to tolerate would be uh, evening of nostalgia, yeah. <laughs> et cetera, because it's just too, bores me. I would think it would bore them. Some of them, I don't think, know how bored they are in the first place, so they would be satisfied with it. But the trick is really to establish contact with them, to talk, to hang out, to do um, some of the brand new material, because they're bright, you know. And I'd say the same for the European audiences. They know, it doesn't even matter what language or what what country. You have to give them something new and then they appreciate that that you've trusted them with something brand new it's a little harder over there because the words but uh no it's been a, a very nice um uh combination of mixing them both and of course the more new ones that i do the more relaxed i am singing the old ones because i don't feel as though i'm just being a rerun joan do you get do you get and did you uh did you get much of a, a jane fonda reaction uh of really hostility from from audiences or press or groups or things like that? Well, because of the differences between us, which some people actually did figure out, at least by the end of the war, I would say, uh, certainly at the beginning, I mean, you know, the veterans of foreign wars would be picketing at one concert, and <laughs> et cetera. And, um, but in, in our natures, in our politics, we're very different. She is a leftist and I'm not. Right. Um, and so in our politics, when people began to see the difference, that I would also work against human rights violations in Hanoi and I would work for Siberian prisoners in USSR. Um, slowly, some people have understood that, but also, I think, in our natures and the stridency that, for instance, many, many years ago, singing in Salt Lake City, I was picketed by the young Americans for freedom outside the hotel. So I went out and talked to them. I said, well, you know, what are you guys <laughs> What's the deal? What are you picketing about? No, we started a chat. I said, you know, you haven't even heard me. I'll tell you what. I'll give you guys complimentary seats for tonight, and then afterwards we'll talk. And after the show, we were all great friends. You know, and they may not have liked some of the things I said, but in, if you, that's one of the things that I really do enjoy about meeting people and having a chance to talk about nonviolence and, and my ideas. And some people, of course, are so sure that I'm a communist that they wouldn't be able to listen or talk. But, they, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty hard-hit. Stuff. And you found that's gone away pretty much? Well, no. No, it never, it never goes away. The stations in the South would not yeah. play Brothers in Arms. They said, ha-ha, anti-war song, that old yeah. commie, are you kidding? I was just floored when I heard that, but it's still yeah. plenty of that around. 
<laughs> well, uh, you, you have, you know, on, on one hand, to have carved out such a, a piece of history and to be where you are in the whole panorama of things. It may not, it may not please you totally to be put in there, but you are, and so you're forever going to represent something, I guess. Well, I think as long as I'm yeah. attacked by both the KGB yeah. and the CIA, then I'm probably on the right track. So. <laughs> I would hope so. John, thank you very much. Thank you, Joe. I Good luck with I enjoy, Thank you. Copy. And uh, I, I talked to Danny Goldberg the other day, uh, and, and, and the record is lovely, too. I, I hope it's doing well. It's doing, uh, for what we are, it's doing very well. Yeah. And I, I wish you well. We're fixing up our studios down there, too. We're pouring okay. a lot more money, so when you're trying to make another record, I, I hope you'll come down and use it again. Okay, as long as you keep Charlie there. Uh, oh, Charlie ain't going anywhere. I'll tr right. I promise you that. Okay. Joan, good luck and a wonderful trip to Paris. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye, -bye.